Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Good morning, and the conversation continues as we ease on into WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Beautiful day out there, and it promises to be a good day to be out and about here on 94 WIP and out there around the Delaware Valley. My first guest this morning, a remarkable woman, Catherine Smith. She's a journalist, and she's written a new book called The Gatekeeper. Missy LeHand, FDR, and the untold story of the partnership that defined a presidency. We talk about the issue of the power behind the throne. Well, was Missy LeHand the power behind Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidency? We'll find out in just a bit. We'll be back after these messages at WIP Time 701. And we're back, and we're talking about the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his personal secretary and de facto chief of staff, Marguerite Alice Missy the hand with journalist author Catherine Smith. Good morning, Catherine Smith. Good, good morning. It's my pleasure to have you here. Now, Catherine, I have to tell you something before we get started. <laughs> okay. I, I, I get lots of books here at the station, mm-hmm. so I very rarely buy a book. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, your book I actually bought and paid for. Woo! So, so when you get that royalty Thank check, you. you're welcome. <laughs> when you get that royalty check, a small piece of it's me. <laughs> Women and their power. Well, intrigues me greatly. It's one of the reasons I bought The Gatekeeper. Uh-huh. Who was Missy LeHand? Well, she was someone who came from a, a very unremarkable background. She was um, uh, the last, uh, the fourth child of an Irish Catholic American family. Um, she got secretarial training in high school, and she just kind of um, almost accidentally came into FDR's circle when he was running for vice president in 1920 and stayed for 21 years. It's a remarkable story. Um, when you say accidentally came in, was mm-hmm. he hiring a secretary and that's what happened, or did she volunteer? Well, um, she had worked briefly at the Department of the Navy in um, Washington when he was there and um, had sort of a checkered career. It didn't last but a few weeks. And But she had come to know a man named Charles McCarthy who um, worked at the Department of the Navy. He was actually FDR's personal secretary at the Department of the Navy, and he was the campaign secretary three years later when FDR was running for uh, vice president. There's a connection to Philadelphia here. I didn't really trace it down, um, but but, um, after Missy left the Department of the Navy, McCarthy gave her a job in Philadelphia at um, what was called the Emergency Shipping Board. It was a World War um, I-era agency. So she may have worked in Philadelphia for a brief time. But anyway, McCarthy was impressed with her and asked her if she would come and 
uh, work at the campaign office in Manhattan, which she did. Now, 1920 was a really, really bad year for Democrats, rather like <laughs> the one we just had. And uh, FDR and his, uh, the man who was running for president, James Cox, were defeated by Warren G. Harding and um, Calvin Coolidge. So FDR knew that he didn't have uh, you know, a toehold in politics for a while to come, so decided to go work on Wall Street. And he had been impressed with Missy, so he asked her to come and work for him there. And she stayed. Now, um, when we look at Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the women in his life, it gets to be really fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Franklin married to Eleanor, mm-hmm. but it was not a real marriage rather than a marriage of politics. True or false? Um, initially, it was a love match, um, truly. His mother was very much against him getting married, and, and he just insisted he loved Eleanor. And... They had six children. Um, they lost one as a baby, and um, he had gotten just very submerged in politics, and, you know, the, a lot of the, the shine got off the marriage fairly quickly, and then he had a romance of some kind with a woman named Lucy uh, Mercer, who was Eleanor's social secretary, and um, when she found out about it, she was just heartbroken. And they discussed divorce but decided to go on. And after that, it was more of a, a political partnership. Um, so FDR, uh, for the rest of his life, really sought um, companionship with other women. Um, Missy was one of them. His um, distant cousin, Daisy Sookley, was another. Um, he never really lost his connection with Lucy Mercer Rutherford. Uh, she married after their um association ended and um and eleanor just kind of came to accept that she she could not give her husband um what he what he needed on an emotional basis so she went out and carved out her own life which was a an admirable and a really spectacular one when you think about it and um all these other women filled in what a wife might have done um for fdr and at the same time didn't eleanor have quote-unquote, special friends who filled in? Well, it's hard. Yeah, she certainly has special friends. There's there's a book called um, Eleanor and Hick right now that characterizes her relationship with Lorena Hickok as a romance, and other people have said that. It's hard to know, um, but she did have a lot of, lot of friends, um, female and male, um, and I think she was, my, my take on it is that Eleanor was someone who just really craved um, attention and affection, and she got it from lots of different places, just like FDR did. Now, Missy was so close to Franklin that she even had a bedroom in the White House, didn't she? She had a. She actually came to live with the Roosevelt family when he was elected governor of New York in 1928, at Eleanor's request. Um, Eleanor, at that time, was... Um, becoming a real powerhouse of democratic politics. She was teaching school in New York three days a week, and she invited Missy to come live in the governor's mansion because that gave them a a staff member on site and a backup hostess for Eleanor, which she took full advantage of, and it gave Missy a free place to stay, and that continued when they went to the White House. She had a a bedroom um, little suite on the third floor of the White House. But um, Peter, to point to make a point, it wasn't that unusual um, to have staff members living in the White House. Um, FDR's principal secretary in 1933 was Louis Howe, his uh, political strategist. He lived in the White House. Um, 
one night, Harry Hopkins, who was another one of his aides, came to dinner and said he didn't feel well and stayed for three and a half years. Um, Missy said he, the man who came to dinner was written about him. And um, and then Lorena Hickok, um, the woman that has been described as, as Eleanor's lesbian lover, um, we don't know if that's true or not, she lived in the White House. She lived in a, um, a Eleanor's study or uh you know, off and on, she traveled a lot for her job. But so there were just a lot of people who lived at the White House. <laughs> well, I even think I remember Joseph Lash, the gentleman who biographied Franklin and Eleanor, also had a room in the White House. He probably did, too. Yeah, actually, you know, my interest kind of wanes after Missy um, <laughs> has a stroke and has to leave in 1941. But, yeah, just lots. It was really kind of like a boarding house at times. And, you know, then you had all these royal families that were fleeing from Europe after the war started. They all came and started living at the White House. They had a hard time getting Madame Chiang Kai-shek out of the place. So um, not all that strange. <laughs> well, yeah. it was strange, but not at the time. <laughs> Clearly, then, Eleanor and Missy had a friendship. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, that Eleanor really appreciated what Missy did for her um, and for Franklin, and she showed it, demonstrated it many times with um, just really particular kindnesses to Missy. Um, Missy's mother died during the 1932 campaign, and Eleanor just dropped everything. You know, went home with her to Massachusetts. You know, just went right into the family's home and. In um, in Boston, and started making sandwiches, you know, that kind of thing. Um, after Missy's illnesses began in 1941, Eleanor was the one who came to see her rather than Franklin. So, um, and there are letters, exchanges of letters that are very sweet between them. So, um, I think she appreciated what Missy did did for them as a family. Did Missy have a life outside of Franklin in the White House? She did, and that was one of the discoveries I made um, with the research of the gatekeeper. She had a very full life. Um, now, she worked crazy hours. She was on call all the time. But um, she had a, a longstanding relationship with a man named William Christian Bullitt, who was from the, one of the old families in Philadelphia. He actually ran for mayor of Philadelphia at one point. And Bullitt, um, despite his name, was a diplomat. <laughs> Um, he was the United States' first ambassador to the Soviet Union and then later ambassador to Paris. So it was a long-distance relationship, which seemed to suit Missy just fine. But he'd come back, you know, frequently, and he'd, you know, wine her and dine her, and, you know, she wrote him lots of letters. But um, once he returned permanently after um, the Nazis took over Paris in 1940, their relationship soured real quickly. And I think it was really because he wanted too much of her time. She she was her first priority was always the Roosevelt's. And she broke it off saying, you know, if you can't understand that, um, I just can't deal with you anymore. Well, there's an old saying, distance lends enchantment in me. Yes, exactly. I think that was, I've, I've often said that she liked him fine as long as he stayed on his side of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> Uh, but he was he was a real operator. He probably used her for influence also, and um, he was uh, you know seeing lots of other women while he was abroad. So you know, not such a good guy. What about Missy's relationship with it Franklin? Was it strict? Was Franklin was it strictly professional? Well, there's really no way to know that. Um, you know, there's all what what has just been written forever was that she was his lover. So yeah, you know, I read somewhere his mistress of twenty years. There's no proof of that. There's no proof that they were ever um, sexual. Um, 
Now, I think it's clear that she adored him. He adored her. Um, but I think that, that that seems that camouflages her true value to him, which was as a confidant and an advisor, and also camouflages the power she exercised in Washington. Um, when I read contemporary accounts about Missy, people who knew her well would say you know, she was one of the most powerful people in the New Deal, and that's why the book is called The Gatekeeper. She was his, you know, protector and also um, exercised a tremendous amount of control about who to, who got to see FDR. So um, I came into the book, the, the research for the book, thinking that, that Missy was going to find out she was a great love of FDR's life, and I came away saying, well, I'm not sure about that, but boy, was she a, a powerful woman. And certainly not the first powerful woman in Washington. No, but, but one of the first. Um, I mean, one. Uh, it's hard to think of another who you know, well, it wasn't a, a wife like um, uh, Mrs. Wilson, Edith Wilson, who actually, you know, was pretty much the de facto president for the last 18 months of Wilson's presidency because he was um, so debilitated by his stroke. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, was very powerful. But then the New Deal was a time that women really came to the fore. Um, Frances Perkins was the first female cabinet member, um, very competent person. Um, there were assistant secretaries at different, um, uh, like Treasury, who were women. And Missy also was the first um, to bring, um, she and, and Louie Howe, to bring just a huge cadre of one, women into the White House as, as um, secretaries, as the right-hand women of, of the men in charge, before all the men who worked in the White House, I mean, all the clerks, all the secretaries in the White House were men. Um, Hoover's was just an all-male organization. So um, that was a really big change. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Catherine Smith, author of the new book, The Gatekeeper, Missy LeHand, FDR, and the untold story of a part of the partnership that defined the presidency. It's a story of politics. It's a story of relationships. It's a story of one woman. Now, Catherine, I need you to stay with me. I've got to run a few okay. commercials to, okay. be, to be able to pay the bills around here. That's fine. <laughs> we'll be back in just a bit to WIP time, 7.15. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name is Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Catherine Smith, journalist, author, her new book, The Gatekeeper, Missy LeHand, FDR, and the untold story of the partnership that defined the presidency. And I should add, it's now available both in hardback and in paperback. So congratulations, Catherine. Yeah, and ebook and audiobook. <laughs> Did you do the reading for the audiobook? No, 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 no. Um, a, a very talented um, book reader named Bernadette Dunn did the reading. So um, that would have been quite a reading in my southern accent, wouldn't it? <laughs> but it's delightful, certainly. So um, actually, I've been doing a lot of um, talks around the country um, impersonating Missy. And uh, when I do that, I use a Boston accent, and I've actually fooled people in Boston with my accent. <laughs> a whole other career from journalism to actress. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> yes. All right. What happened to Missy? Well, it's a it's a sad story, and it's a, a story that's um, you know that is repeated over and over again when someone is is very powerful, and then um, suddenly their health. Um, 
breaks down, and that's what happened to her. Um, Missy had had rheumatic fever as a young teenager, and that was a very serious illness at the time. It um, it uh, affected her, her heart valves, so she had periodic problems with atrial fibrillation all through her life, and. And what happens with it, um, what happened to many people who had rheumatic fever at the time is they would, um, the, they'd have valve stenosis. The valves would get narrower and narrower and they'd start passing clots and they'd have, have strokes and heart attacks. And very few people um, who had serious rheumatic fever as children lived to be, you know, more than 50. And um, she had a massive stroke in 1941. She was uh, 44 years old. And it affected her uh, severely. She was paralyzed on her right side, but uh, probably worst of all, it affected her speech. And um, she had to leave the White House. She uh, went down to Warm Springs, uh, the polio rehab place that she and FDR had actually started together. And if we have time, I'd like to talk more about that. And then she um, had another stroke a few years later and died. She was 47 years old. Did the Roosevelt take care of her, though, after the stroke? They did. They did. FDR um, paid all of her medical bills, um, including having a, you know, a nurse on, at her home for years. Um, and he also did really sweet things, like he'd send um, movie tickets to her and a car to pick her up and take her to the movies in Boston. Um, but um, And he also put her in his will. Um, she actually died before he did, but he had stipulated in his will that she was on an equal basis with his wife um, for um, half the income of his estate each year to go to her for her medical bills. Um, but he never saw her after she left the White House in 1941, um, I mean, 1942. And um, and that was what she really wanted. She wanted to see him, but he never came to see her. He was a little busy at that point, you know, fighting World War II, but well, still. But he still made trips down to Warm Springs, didn't he? he w- yeah, he made trips lots of places. But, you know, his health was also in, in really bad shape by then. And I think that, that w- that's something that has not been... Um, delved into a great deal except by a few authors um you know it was that big cover-up no most of the people in the country had no idea that he was unable to walk without help and they did not know you know how serious his other health problems were he probably had cancer by then he had a serious serious high blood pressure and um, all sorts of issues like that he was having cognitive problems too so he was a very sick man by his um the end of his third term do people think it was the stress of being his secretary that helped do Missy in? Well, it certainly couldn't have helped, um, hurt, and um, and neither could her smoking habit. Um, you know, everyone in the White House smoked. It must have just been the smelliest place in the world to work, but that was a different time. But, yeah, she was a real heavy smoker. Um, the stress was, was crazy, and then she just had this this heart problem that was um, – was growing more serious. Um, and, you know, you look at it, there were four people, four um, secretaries who came in with FDR in 1933. Louis Howe, um, who was the old, uh, was older, he was in his 60s, Missy, um, a man named Marvin McIntyre, and then uh, Steve Early, who was the press secretary. And only Steve Early survived FDR. Um, and then he died a few years later of a heart attack when he was 61. So, you know, it was just a really tough place to work. As you researched Missy LeHand in the book, The Gatekeeper, mm-hmm. how did you find examples of her influence? 
her influence, um, mostly from her contemporary um, um, memoirs by her contemporaries. And those are people like Sam Rosamond, who was FDR's primary speech writer for his presidency, uh, who was a great admirer of Missy's. Um, just just mentioned sometimes it was it was really a, a treasure hunt to find this stuff because Missy was very uh, self-effacing, which makes her different from a lot of the aides in the White House who are trying to you know build themselves up. Um, she never left any any notes or memoirs or anything like that. There were some news, newspaper interviews. There were some big interviews in um, Saturday Evening Post and um, Look Magazine that gave me some hints. And then there was a good deal of correspondence at the FDR library that um, I was able to delve into. Um, one of the things that she had a really big influence on was appointments. And she um, was the one who suggested FDR's um, first attorney general, Homer Cummings, that's kind of a, a scandalous story. He had had tapped a guy named Thomas Walsh, who was a senator from Montana, to be his, his AG. And Walsh was in his mid-70s, and he had just married this much younger woman, um, a Cuban um, woman, um, and they were on the train going to Washington for the inauguration, and Walsh had a heart attack and died. So, of course, there were all these whispers that it was due to his, um, you know, newlywed amours, and uh, they couldn't think of anyone to replace him. So Missy suggested Homer Cummings, who was a well-respected attorney from Connecticut and uh, had also been the um, chairman of the Democratic Party, and he agreed to take the job. Cummings, um, I've just learned this recently, was the one who envisioned um, a national uh, federal police force and pumped for that, and that was the the FBI. So he was the one who gave Hoover that job, and, um, and you know, initially Hoover was was very successful. He's been tainted by what we know about his secret files now. But in the 1930s, you know, they were that was the era of uh, Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger and all this. And the FBI was the one that that finally quelled that crime wave. So we can thank Missy for that, right? That's, that's a good example of her <laughs> power, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got this really smarmy letter that um, Hoover wrote to her. He, they had been to, uh, she'd been at a dinner party at Cummings' house, and Hoover had been her dinner party. And this really smarmy letter about, "I've never had such a delightful dinner companion." And you now, please come over to the FBI. I want to give you a personal tour. <laughs> so a lot of people cultivated her. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. How hard was it to research the book? Um, well. I, I found it so much fun. I wouldn't think of it as hard. It was just, it was just delightful, actually. Um, everyone I worked with was so kind and helpful, and I, I just have to especially give um, kudos to Missy's family. She's got two great nieces, um, one in Connecticut and one in Virginia, and they were just wonderful to work with. Very, very. Um, cooperative and eager to have their great aunt's story told, and we actually have become great friends. They had a tremendous trove of letters, newspaper clippings, photographs, um, even Missy's home movies from the 30s that had not been delved into before. So that um, definitely helped flesh out my portrait of this remarkable woman. So it was. It took about um, two years to write the book, and... Um, I, I just enjoyed every minute of it. I'm still enjoying every minute of it. 
In fact, is it, aren't the nieces going to donate those films to the FDR library at some point? I hope they will, but that's that's their decision to, to make. And if that happens, that, that'll give a wider audience to them. But that, that's up to them. And um, I have to say that the, the films are just are just hilarious. There's one that's got Eleanor Roosevelt on ice skates. I just never thought I'd see that. And they used to have big picnics for the press. Imagine that today. And uh, they would do relay races. So here you got Eleanor Roosevelt running with an egg on a spoon and adults playing Ring Around the Rosie, just all kinds of crazy stuff like that. They really made their own fun in the 1930s. <laughs> Amazing, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the biggest surprise? The power. The power she had was the biggest surprise because, as I said, that just wasn't what I expected at all. Um, but one one thing that I especially enjoyed learning about was her role in starting the the polio rehab center at um, at Warm Springs, because Missy, when FDR went there, went there for the first time. It was just an old, broken down Victorian resort that happened to be, you know, had a. a a warm mineral pool on its grounds, and he had heard about a polio survivor who'd finally begun to walk after he'd exercised in the pool. So they went there just on that, you know, slender hope. And um, he loved it there, and Eleanor didn't. So Missy was the one who always stayed with him at Warm Springs, um, became the hostess there. And when he got the idea of buying the place and turning it into a first-class um, spa, as he called it, health spa for polios, she was the one who believed in that, who encouraged that. And, you know, many people forget, um, Peter, that FDR was the one who started the March of Dimes, which found um, the cure for polio, found the vaccine, with no government investment. It was all done pretty much by citizens just sending in their dimes and quarters and small donations. Um, it's an amazing story, and that's the reason FDR is on the dime today. Well, I remember back in the Stone Age when mm-hmm. we all got those little folders uh-huh. to uh-huh. stick little your folders. money in and turn them into teacher to go to the uh, March yeah. of Dimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first March, the literally the March of Dimes was an idea of a radio comedian, Eddie Cantor, and he suggested that everyone send a March of Dimes to the White House. And a dime at the time was worth about $1.75, so it was, you know, a decent contribution. And the White House was just flooded with silver, and just thousands and thousands of envelopes came in with a dime or, you know, a little bit more. And Missy was kind of the um, publicity girl for that. They took pictures of her opening the mail and holding a dime up to the camera and all that. Um, so she was very much his liaison with the March of Dimes and with Warm Springs, um, handled all his business for those things. And great believer. And that was the irony that she wound up in Warm Springs herself after her stroke, but um, there wasn't much they could do for her. You know, you've had such a serious stroke, it's kind of cleaning up the damage afterwards. How did Missy feel about the other ladies in Franklin's life? You know? Um, yeah, I don't really know. Um, certainly she and, and Daisy Sukley knew each other well. Um, and I, and she was also, you know, one of the many people who enabled um, him to keep in touch with Lucy Mercer Rutherford. Um, Lucy Rutherford made her first visit to the uh, White House the day after Missy had her her stroke. So, but Missy, I'm sure, had facilitated that. You know, whatever whatever the boss wanted, she was going to 
get done for him and the rest of the White House staff um, enabled Lucy to make many trips there. Um, I mean, his own daughter enabled her to make trips to the White House to be with her father because he was so lonely. You know, Eleanor was just traveling more and more. She had rebuffed FDR's attempts to reestablish a more intimate marriage, and, you know, she was just through with that. So it had to be a blow when she discovered that Lucy had been with him at Warm Springs when he was stricken on um, April 12, 1945. But um, it's, that's kind of what happened. I also understand, she, as part of her service to Franklin, she mm-hmm. could mix a mean martini. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The story is that he was the one that did did all the mixing. That that his martinis were famously weak. It's um, his recipe was two ounces of gin to one ounce vermouth, and usually people put more gin in than that. Though I personally like that recipe. I don't know about you. I don't like really strong drinks. Um, but Missy was, you know, she was Irish Catholic. She was um, was a drinker, and um, she was, Eleanor was, and Eleanor had, had so much alcoholism in her family, she was very much opposed to drinking. And um, so Missy was always the hostess at the, the children's hour, which is what they called the daily cocktail hour. And uh, unfortunately, I think she succumbed to a lot of um, drinking after her stroke. It was just a mark of her despair, I think. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My guest, journalist Catherine Smith, author of The Gatekeeper, Missy LeHand, FDR, and the untold story of the partnership that defined the presidency. Catherine, it's commercial time again, so stay okay. with me, and okay. we'll be back in just a bit. And we're back into the home stretch of WIP Sunday with Catherine Smith, journalist, author, her new book, The Gatekeeper. What led you to write the book, Catherine? Um, well, a couple of things. Um, one is that I um, have always been interested in FDR since I was a child, and I can trace that back to my grandfather. His name was, was Bruce Yandel. Um, he's what we call in the South of a yellow dog Democrat. Do you know that term? No. Okay. It means that you would vote for a yellow dog before you'd vote for a Republican. And my grandfather was kind of the radical version of that, which is a dead yellow dog Democrat. <laughs> uh, I used to ask him, um, Papa, would, would, why do you always vote for a Democrat? And he said, oh, well, honey, I don't vote for the Democrat. I vote for the best man, and it's just always the Democrat. But that um, he had been a young father, uh, young husband and father during the, the early years of the Depression. My father, my father was born in 1933, which was just, you know, the the nader of it and um he his life got met better quickly when fdr came in um, my grandfather was a newspaper printer and he always had a job but a lot of times his paychecks bounced so um he and my grandmother were you know had to sometimes ask for credit at grocery stores it was just a really hard time um so he just adored fdr and I, that I, I guess the interest began there um then I had a more personal interest because uh, 17 years ago I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was uh, 44 years old, and I just, you know, I was just depressed and, and really terrified. And I was watching a documentary about FDR one night, and they they went into his recovery from polio and that the words that he gave in his uh, first inaugural, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, really stuck with me. And that became kind of my mantra all through my treatment is, you know, if you can get past the fear, you can move forward. 
And um, so I just, I think that made my interest in him grow and grow, and I started reading more about him. And then I, would, I started noticing this woman, Missy Lahan. And I thought, God, what a fascinating woman. What a fabulous life she must have had. And um, that's, you know, I wanted to read a book about her and found out no one had ever written one, so I decided to write one myself. And I did. <laughs> do you think her life was fabulous? I do. I do. I, even though it was sad in the end and, and cut short, um, she had quite a run for 20 years. And when you look at all the things Missy got to do, um, all the people she met, um, just, you know, she, there are letters that, that she got from Douglas Fairbanks, Jr., and um, you know, just signed books from Sinclair Lewis and, and all these people that were in her bookcase. Um, she got to go. She would get just, you know, first-class travel everywhere she went. She'd get tickets to Broadway plays, um, just very glamorous woman. She, when her inventory, when she died, included 11 evening gowns. Um, and when I went to see her... Um, her great niece um, Jane, who has a lot of the, well, she has pretty much all of the invitations that Missy had gotten to. She just saved everything. Jane had a, you know, a long dining room table, and it was just covered in stacks and stacks of invitations of everything Missy had been invited to, and everything at the White House, and just at embassies and people's homes. I mean, she just had a really full and exciting life and plus she was had that ringside seat in what I think was the most fascinating decade in America in the 20th century the, the 30s and the early 40s um, so I'd, I'd, I'd switch places with her and how was your working relationship with the good folks at Hyde Park the Franklin D. Roosevelt oh Library? gosh I can't say enough, enough good things about them um, the 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 staff at the the archive are are so helpful and so professional and so kind and um, since then I've gotten to speak there twice. Um, they have a I, I'm so jealous of the people who live up there within driving distance of Hyde Park because they have programs all the time. I'm on their mailing list and I just think oh I wish I didn't live so far away. But they had 50 different public programs so almost one a week um, last year. Um, they've got a terrific guy named um, Cliff Lobb who organizes these things. And then Paul Sparrow, their director, is just a, a just a terrific guy. I just can't say how, how, how charming and um, broad-ranging are his interests in FDR. He's, he came on board after the um, – you know, about the time the book came out. But he's just, just been a, a wonderful person to work with. So – how far are y'all from Hyde Park in Philadelphia? It's not well, that far. I'm not sure how far, but I've been to Hyde Park. Certainly. Yeah, you know, you're a couple of hours, I guess. Um, anyway, everyone should go there. Um, right now they have a, an exhibit about the Japanese internment during World War II, which is very, very interesting and, and sad, um, one of the, the big mistakes that FDR made. Um, and I think that's unusual in presidential libraries that they present him warts and all. I've been to several of them, and they're usually not real warts and all, you know. <laughs> Abs absolutely. Yeah. Was there yeah. A, were, were there surprises that you found? Um, yeah, I think one of the big ones about him was the, the state of his health. Um, one of the people who was very helpful to me in writing this book was a, a guy from um, 
Orange, New, West Orange, New Jersey. He's a practicing neurologist named Steve Lamezo, and he's the co-author of a book called FDR's Deadly Secret. And um, Dr. Lamezo's contention is that FDR had uh, malignant melanoma, that big spot over his eye that just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then all of a sudden it got smaller and smaller and smaller, um, and that, that contributed to his um, cerebral hemorrhage. And I think he's right about that, and I think that that a lot of Missy's behavior um, from 1940 on um, corroborates that. When he was nominated for his third term in June 1940, she was the only one in the room who cried because I think she knew how how serious his health problems were, and uh, she was afraid that another term would kill him. She gave her an interview to a reporter where she said, well, I guess if the president can stand another term, I can too. And the irony, of course, was she had a stroke the next year, and he went on to even begin a fourth term. So the fragility of his health was a surprise to me because that was kept so much a secret. Would it be fair to say that she loved Franklin Roosevelt? Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, I've had bosses I've loved, too, and you know, lots of different kinds of love. But, yeah, I think she adored FDR. I think she adored Eleanor also. Um, and I think that when she went home to Massachusetts, she just pined for the life that she had left behind, that busy, important life where she was contributing um, to the country and, and felt, you know, that she was an essential part of the government. Um, a lot of people from Washington came to see her from time to time, um, and but at the same time, it, it just she was very lonely, and um, it was the last few years were really sad. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting epilogue to all of this. Um, Missy is buried at a beautiful cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts, called Massachusetts, called Mount Auburn. Um, there's this great big boulder of rose quartz on the grave with the Lahan name on it, and she's buried there with um, a couple of her family members, her sister and one of her nieces and the niece's husband. And um, FDR's family apparently established a, um, a perpetual trust, and they are, have been paying for the upkeep of that Lahan grave for all of these years. Now that says something, doesn't it? Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Now, your own background, though, as a journalist. Yeah, I was a, a newspaper journalist for 17 years. I went to the University of Georgia and uh, worked in three different daily papers in South Carolina. And then I left and went into nonprofit work. Um, I managed a community theater for a few years, so that's where the acting comes in, I guess. And um, then I, I started, after my cancer experience, I started a nonprofit in my town that helps cancer patients and ran that for eight years. And after I retired, um, I retired early. I retired at 55. I decided that I wanted to go back into writing again. So I started doing that as a professional um, writer and editor. And um, The Gatekeeper is my first nationally published book. Um, I was very, very lucky uh, with the help of Dr. Lamezo, who I mentioned before. I met a marvelous young um, agent, Meg Thompson, and she sold my book to Touchstone, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. And just can't say enough things, good things about the folks at Simon & Schuster. They've been terrific. So it's, um, it's, it's just been a really fun experience, and I've gotten to, to speak all over the place. Um, 
and uh, as I've said, I'm, I'm doing a lot of talks now in costume and, and in person as Missy LaHand, which has been uh, been really, really fun. What's the next book, Catherine Smith? Um, <laughs> well, I'm kind of doing something different. I've got one of my editing clients is a terrific novelist named Kelly Durham, and we're coll- collaborating on a caper novel that involves Missy Land, Shirley Temple, FDR, J. Edgar Hoover, and a cast of fictional characters. So um, that's what I'm doing right now. I've got another biography in mind, but I'm just kind of taking a break and, and doing something fun with Missy. Not ready to let her go yet. <laughs> I love it. It reminds me of the Elliot Roosevelt books. Oh, well, they're going to be. It's going to be better than that because the Elliot Roosevelt's always made Missy look like a slut, and she's not. <laughs> And I'd like to say thank you to Catherine Smith, biographer, the gatekeeper, Missy LeHand, FDR, and the untold story of a partnership that defined a presidency. Yes, indeed, Missy LeHand was a power behind the throne, an unsung hero. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. It's been a joy. Thank you. Bye. And you've been listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sunny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. Always good stuff. And I want to say enjoy the rest of today. It's a beautiful day out there. The sun is shining. Humidity's a little, yeah, but it's still a good day to be out and about doing what you need to do and maybe having a little bit of fun. I want to say thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer. Couldn't do the show without you. He's an essential part of my operation, and to Ann Todd and Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. Nothing left to say, but see you soon. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.